Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Continue on our chapter-by-chapter study of this epistle. And uh, I intentionally asked uh, Zach to do our corporate reading from Psalm uh, 40 because it factors into our chapter tonight. In fact, it's really kind of at the center of what the writer of Hebrews is revealing about Christ and his work as our high priest, which if you're joining us right now, uh, we're 10 chapters in, so you're a little behind, but we've been looking at primarily through the book of Hebrews, this, this, the writer's desire that as believers that we would persevere faithfully to the end of our life, that we would follow Jesus, that we would remain faithful, that we wouldn't drift away from him from, by the deceitfulness of sin or be intimidated by the world and quit and give up our witness, but that we would hold fast to our confession. And he's been pointing out that we primarily do that together, corporately, as a body. We hold fast to Jesus by looking to him, by listening to him, by considering him. And so we've gotten these awesome kind of unique glimpses of who Christ is through his role as prophet, as king, and then primarily as our great high priest. And so chapter 10 really becomes the the final word that he's going to give us on the high priestly work of Christ. And so this passage factors in, and, and it and, and it's the part where he says in, so if you could put up Psalm 40 again, where in verse 6 he says this, In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offerings and sin offerings you have not required. So we've been discussing how, yeah, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ, and it was like a shadow. It, it was a foreshadowing of who Christ would be and what he would accomplish. So the whole ceremonial law with the Levitical priesthood and the bulls and the goats and the lambs and the, the tabernacle and the ark and the mercy seat on top of the ark and the day of atonement and all this pointing to Christ. And so we've already talked about, we've already discussed how, yeah, the blood of bulls and goats, that was never actually given to cleanse our conscience, to actually remove sin, to do away with guilt, it was all pointing to something greater, namely the perfect work of Jesus. But why does he say, you, have, you don't desire that, you don't, you don't really want, and this is Old Testament, right? This is David, some 1,000 years before Jesus, you know, the incarnation and Jesus enters this world. Why is David saying this and in the middle of it going, you don't desire sacrifices. You've given me an open ear. What's he, what's he talking about? So uh, I'll interrupt that thought with the story. So uh, I've got a wife and two daughters and two sons. And uh, one of my daughters and my wife, they're, they have a gluten allergy. And my daughter developed, you know, my wife had a good run. Like she didn't really develop that until into her 30s. And I think you know, that, you had your moment in the sun, you know, but my daughter was like seven or eight, and I just always felt, you know, so bad, like, you know, one, when it was first happening, and you're trying to figure out, like, why is this kid writhing, you know, which if you're a good parent, you'll try to think through, 
And, you know, then I was just, I just felt sad. Like, she's just missing out, especially when she, you know, it's gotten better. But at the beginning, she'd be like, here, try my pizza. And I'm just not good at acting or lying. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that tastes just like the other pizza I'm about to go back to. Um, so it just felt bad. And I remember uh, this lady came to camp and one summer and she told us about this doctor that she had gone to for something not not a doctor a practitioner of sorts and how you know there's a condition that she had and I won't go into all that but this guy got rid of it through this practice and and I was like you know what if it won't hurt her I'll give it a go like, there's no known cure. There's no pill to take to eat gluten. Like, we'll give it a go. I'd love for her to not to have to worry about it. So there was two doctors, and one was, I forget where the other one was, but the other one was in Virginia Beach. And I was like, we're going to the one in Virginia Beach because in case it doesn't work, we'll go to the beach. And so, so we packed up and went to Virginia Beach and went and saw this guy. And about five minutes in, I was starting to be, uh, you know, not as optimistic because I was like, what, what he does is he would put, <laughs> I shouldn't even tell you this, he's going to put these pins in my daughter's ear, like acupuncture type stuff. I'm like, well, that's an ancient practice, sure. Like, but I, I made a mistake and I said, well, why, <laughs> why the ear? And he said, well, and he got way too excited and he took me over to a drawing and there was a picture of an ear and a picture of a, a baby, of a fetus. And the ear... <laughs> had been drawn to look just like in shape and form like the fetus, the baby. And so he, was, he said, do you see how the, the, the fetus is represented in the air? And I said, yes, I do in this drawing. <laughs> and I do see that. I don't even have to squint. And, and so he started walking through how the ear forms and develops in the same shape because it's like, and he made this tiny, tiny step. He said, it's like the breaker box to the whole body. And when something goes wrong, you can heal it through the ear. I started thinking, when can we get to the beach, right? And so he puts, you know, not like that, <laughs> gently put in these tiny little pins into my daughter's ear. He had to wait a year, take them out, and uh, she still has to eat subpar pizza. That's not the moral of the story. The moral story, like, I don't believe that the ear is the breaker box to the body, but like, why does he say this? Why does he say like, you don't desire bulls and goats and actual sacrifice, even though God's the one who set up this system. The sacrificial system was God's idea. It was his gracious provision. And why and how does it relate to the work, the perfect work of Jesus? And for that, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, 
there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he's really kind of summarizing everything that we've come up to this point with the sacrificial system and saying, again, yeah, like, this was all shadow. It was never designed to actually take away your sin, but he's getting back to the point what, what the, there was beauty in the Old Testament system. God was drawing near to his people. He was making provision for us to be back in a relationship with him, but even in that provision, there was constant reminder of two things. Our sin and the separation that exists between us and God. We did not have, and we being like the nation of Israel, so not really we, but they, they did not have full access to God. Every time they went to worship, what they could remember is, this animal doesn't really take away my sin, but I have to keep offering it. And I don't have full access in relationship to my God, and I can see that by the sets of curtains and the tribe that alone is set apart to even serve in the temple, let alone the one person one day a year who can go into the Holy of Holies and not stay for any length of time, but has to come right back out, reminding us that we don't belong, we're sinful, we're separated from God by our sin. But that's God's grace. That was God's grace. Even the moral law and what it does. Like, and so law, what he says law right here, he's talking about the ceremonial law, and, you know, sometimes in the New Testament, you have to, by the context, distinguish or determine if he's talking about the whole law or if he's just talking about the moral law that we typically refer to as the Ten Commandments or if he's talking about the ceremonial law, the priests and the sacrifices. And so here he's primarily, he has in view the ceremonial law. But even the moral law, right, the Ten Commandments, that in and of itself was never given to us to show us how to be saved, but that we need to be saved. And the sacrifices weren't given so that we could have our sins removed, but that we could understand the work that would have to be done when the Messiah came, when the suffering servant would really come, when the shadow would give way to, to the reality of Christ. And so they could never do it. The blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sin. And we've seen this. We've talked about this. But they would do this all the time, day in and day out, year in and year out. They'd offer these sacrifices. And jump down to verse 11. We'll come back. But he, he talks about this morning. He says, And every priest stands daily at service, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he's saying, yeah, they stood all the time, and there's this contrast. They're always standing and always serving and always sacrificing because it never actually atoned for anything. He says, man, you know this because it never cleansed your conscience. He said earlier, man, wouldn't they have stopped? Like, if it actually could cleanse your conscience, they, they would have stopped with the sacrifices. There would have been time, okay, like, you've given enough. You don't have to bring a lamb here anymore. Your conscience is now cleansed. He's saying the mere fact that they continue to do it shows it was pointing to something greater, and then he spells it out. Jesus has come, and he offered the once-for-all perfect sacrifice. 
himself. And that we saw earlier, it, it brings eternal redemption. He's able to save to the uttermost because of who he is and what he's accomplished and that he still serves as our great high priest. Back up to verse 5. Blood of bulls and goats can't save. Here we're going to get into our quotation from Psalm 40 and maybe get our ear question answered. It says, Consequently, because the blood of bulls and goats can't save, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, all right, so go ahead and get the picture in your mind. It's talking about the incarnation. Now we know the incarnation happened. Jesus was formed in the womb of Mary and Christmas morning he's born, star shining, angel singing. But here what the writer of Hebrews wants us to picture is not so much that moment in history, but this conversation outside of that between the eternal Son and the Father. There's this work of redemption to be done, and this conversation takes place. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus speaking, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. Okay, so he's quoting the same verses we just read. What's different? Did you see it? I'll start all over. So my daughter's got a gluten allergy. Did you see it? Okay, when we read it in Psalm 40, he said, an ear you have opened for me. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, a body you have prepared for me. Now, sometimes this happens when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, but it doesn't seem to be very consequential, but this seems to be a fairly drastic difference. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that the writer of Hebrews always quotes from the Septuagint. Okay, and that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Our, our Bibles, if you have an ESV, NIV, New American Standard, whatever, all the, all the good ones, like, they go right from the Hebrew to English. And in the Hebrew, and you probably even see if you turn back to Psalm 40, next to you've opened my ear, there should be a little one next to it. And if you follow that to the bottom of your page on your, in your Bible, it'll say lit an ear you have dug out. And what's going on is, okay, in Hebrew, it seems to be this idiom, like this picture of, okay, it's the same idea as you've made, you've woven together a body for me, but what the, in the Hebrew, what's being emphasized in the creation of this body is the ear. That the ear becomes... uh, like the symbol for the entire body. But why the ear? Well, the ear, obviously, is what we use to hear with. We know that. So what would would that have to do with, you don't desire sacrifices, you want me to have an open ear. So you dug out, you formed a body that would have ears for me. 
Well, the writer of Hebrews sees this and he understands it and he wants to emphasize this. You don't desire dumb animals to be killed. That doesn't do anything. And over and over and over again, you'll see this in the Old Testament. uh, Hosea 6 says it this way, God speaking, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 15.22. This is when Samuel is confronting Saul. Saul's disobeyed God, but then like used the, the, the goods that, and the animals that he got in disobeying God and turns them into a sacrifice. And Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. You can see this all through the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, where God is saying, I am sick of your lambs and your rams and your bulls. Quit burning incense to me. Why? Because your heart is far from me, and that's made evident by your disobedience. I desire obedience. I desire a broken and contrite heart, not these animals. And so when Jesus is coming into the world, what Jesus is saying is, you don't want any more lambs, you don't want any more, the time for that is ending. You have prepared a body for me. Jesus in the incarnation would take on a human body, real flesh, real blood. And he says, I have come to do your will, O God. What's he saying? I'll obey. I will hear your word and obey your will on behalf of a human race that is only ever disobeyed. Jesus has come to obey the will of God, and he's saying, my ears open. Tell me, and I'll do it. John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus speaking. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say, what to speak. John 14, 13, or (laughs) one of us is dyslexic. John 14, 31, you can laugh, it's okay. (laughs) But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Matthew, maybe the most famous one, Matthew 26, 39, in the garden. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Paul talks about it this way in Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Listen, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The writer of Hebrews wants us to see what David understood about his greater son. He's coming to obey. 
even though his obedience would mean the sacrifice of his life, of his own body. That's why Jesus was put together in the womb of Mary for the work of the Holy Spirit. His ear was formed, his fingers, his toes, his mouth, his eyes, his DNA woven together. Why? So he could lay down that life as a perfect offering to his Father. Verse 8, back in Hebrews 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we, and now the we means us, the church, all those who are redeemed, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Does away with the word first to bring in the second. What's he saying? Yeah, the, that's done. The Old Testament's done. The Old Covenant's done. We're not unhitched from it as if the Old Testament doesn't matter and it doesn't still speak to us and doesn't still inform us in how we're to relate to God and, and how to approach him in worship, but it's done as far as the ceremonial requirements. Why? It's finished. We sang about it. It's finished. The shadow gave way to the reality. All those pictures. We, we've looked at it. It's a beautiful picture. Like the final dramatic act of the tabernacle, of the temple. Right? Everything that it pointed to with the candles and the showbread and the ark and the woven veils, like everything that it pointed to, like remember like the final act, the last thing it gets to do in prefiguring Christ. Do you remember what happens in the temple when Jesus is outside the gate dying on the cross and actually saying out loud, it is finished. The veil is torn from top to bottom. All that separated us is removed. What is God saying in that last dramatic act? He's grabbing the top of the veil and ripping it, and he's saying, come in. You now have full access through Christ. What couldn't remove your guilty conscience has been replaced by what has removed the guilt and sin and the pollution and the shame. All of it's been removed by the perfect offering of Jesus. Jump down to verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, so it's the second time he said sanctified. The first time was in verse 10, and he said, we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus. And here he says those who are being sanctified. So typically when Paul in the New Testament, when he talks about sanctification, when he uses that term, he's talking about the ongoing process, the work of the Holy Spirit that we participate in in becoming more like Christ and making us more like Christ and where we're being made holy in our practice, where that which has been done 
for us in Christ positionally is becoming a reality in our life. This first time in, in verse 10 when he says that we have been sanctified, he's, the writer of Hebrews is using it and how he primarily uses this word is in the ceremonial way. That, that we've been set apart as holy. We've been made fit for worship. You see this in the Old Testament when they would sprinkle articles in the temple with blood. It was so that it could be used as being sanctified so it could be used in worship. And what he's saying is that's now happened to you. That's happened to us definitively. It doesn't have to keep on happening. It happened once in Christ and it's over. You now have been set apart, not only given access to come into the presence of God and pray, you have been set apart by the blood of Jesus, given full access into God's presence to worship, to be used for service. In chapter nine, he said that and he's cleansed our conscience so that we might serve the living God. And now he's saying, yeah, you are still being sanctified. You're being made holy. That is an ongoing process in your life. Like as you daily obey the Lord's call to come into his presence, receive grace and mercy day by day, moment by moment, he's doing the work of making you more like Jesus, making you holy. He goes on and says, verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So he goes back again to Jeremiah 31, which we covered in chapter 8 and awesome sermon he goes back to that it's like okay what how, how is this all fitting together old system is done great man we, we've been talking about that really in earnest since chapter 7 we got into the high priesthood and chapter 9 so detailed and how all these things are fading away and no more like so get that okay so Jesus saying yeah you've created a body for me so that I can obey you and be the perfect sacrifice? Why does he then come back to this and say, yeah, and remember, the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, which was written on stone, the new covenant is being written on your hearts and minds. Why is he saying that? Because Jesus didn't only cleanse our conscience so we would have access and forgiveness, but so that we would also serve. That Jesus isn't just our Savior, he's also our example. What's he saying? God still desires the same thing. What he's always desired, our obedience, our worship, our service. And he's saying now, because Jesus actually accomplished that, his law has been written. We're not un unhitching from the law. The law has been written on our hearts and minds so that we can now serve. Now we have the desire to obey. And more than just the desire to obey, the, the, the energy, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit 
to help us obey, to empower us to live a life of worship. So that's what you've been freed for. That's why you've been forgiven. The work is finished and perfect, and now we live our lives in the presence of Jesus. We look to Jesus. We listen to Jesus in order to become, in our moment-by-moment experience, more like Jesus. That is to say, to become obedient to the will of God in our lives. For Jesus, he says, I've come to do your will. That meant he took on flesh because in chapter two he tells us, because the children share in flesh, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might taste death for all of us, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and set us free. That was God's will for Jesus. Well, what's God's will for us? If because Jesus obeyed and accomplished the work, and that has set us free to obey the will of God, what's his will? What is his will for your life? He's told us, hold fast. Don't drift. Keep listening to Jesus. Don't drift. Don't be deceived by sin. Hold fast to your confession. Encourage the other believers around you to hold fast to their confession. Keep meeting together. Keep worshiping. Keep your witness clean and pure before the outside world. Continue to look for the, we haven't got there yet, but it's coming. Continue to look for the return of Christ. That's his will for our life. That you continue to live your life in the presence of God. And that we'd hold fast. That we wouldn't let go. And that we would keep one another accountable to that. It's fascinating. I know I've mentioned this before. I don't remember if I mentioned it in this study. So if I have, just play along. Humor me. I I just have often wondered, okay, on that day when Jesus yells out, it is finished, and y'all remember, y'all know, right? Like, not it's not just that Jesus died on the cross and everyone's like, okay, where do we go from here? I mean, the sun, God turned off the sun. Like, dead people got out of the grave and walked around. And other people saw it. Like, not, not zombies, but like people were back from the dead, giving witness and testimony to the power of the perfect work of Christ. This crazy day, and the, the veil's torn. It wasn't, this was not the Day of Atonement. The priest wasn't behind the curtain. He would have been just outside of it because it was the Passover. So they were in there in the holy place serving and then the veil's torn. And maybe for some of them they got it. But a lot of them didn't. And I just think, what did they do? Did they stitch the veil back together? Did they replace it with a new one? And would the irony be lost on them? When God is saying, 
All this is over. It's done. It was just a picture. Here, full, complete access to the perfect sacrifice of my son. And the religious people said, no, we'll take the separation and stitch it back up. No, 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 no. We, we like keeping our distance from you. I mean, that's tragic. It's tragic. Not just for ancient Israel and anybody who would still try to consider themselves an Orthodox Jew, which I don't know what that means because there's no temple and there's no priesthood and there's no more sacrifice. Jesus has accomplished all of it. But it's tragic when when we take that approach because we know better. We know that the work is done. But how many days, practically speaking, in our life do we, instead of hearing Jesus through the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 say, come boldly, come confidently before the throne to receive grace and mercy for your time of need. How many of us go practically, ah, just keep the curtain shut. Uh, I prefer the little bit of separation. I'll see you on Sunday. That's convicting. A lot of us don't do that intentionally. I know there's days where I don't do that intentionally, but I act that way. And I forget the privilege that I have to live my life in the presence of Yahweh, that I can speak directly to my God. No guilt, no shame, completely forgiven. And that wasn't just so that I get to go to heaven when I die. It was so that I can serve him here and now. And primarily that's going to look like worshiping him, loving his church, and encouraging other believers to this end. Let's be faithful today. Let's finish this day faithful to Jesus. And if we'll do that day after day, we'll get to the end of our lives and we can hear, oh, well done, good and faithful servant. We get to be crowned with that compliment from the Lord, which we will then remove and lay at his feet. Because it's only made possible by his perfect work and his writing his law in our hearts and minds that we would even desire to love and serve him. So may we say like Jesus, today, and since it's almost six o'clock, for tomorrow too, May we say, like and because of Jesus, I've come to do your will, O God. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to listen to it, to hear it, to be convicted and challenged. And I pray that we would be obedient to it and that you would, even now, in the hearts and minds of of those of us who maybe have been living outside a torn veil that we, would, that we would enter in, that we would once again take the joy and the priv- privilege to come into your presence, to speak to you, to love you, to serve you. God, I pray for those who don't know you, God, as they hear about your perfect work and your sacrifice to save us, that they be drawn to you in repentance and faith and that in your kindness you'd save their souls. And I pray now that as we go back into a time of worship through song, that you would be pleased, that you'd be glorified, that you would be honored. Christ's name, amen.